morning. Let's pray before we begin. God, we love you and we trust you. And we ask that you would come and make your presence known. Uh, we do not know what it is that we need, but we ask that you would intervene. Make us more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. The nicknames that we carry often have a story. Sometimes they are unusual, nicknames that are given to us based on an event or a specific story in our lives. This might be like someone calling you a name because of a time that you got caught speeding or a problem that you had with the police. Sometimes they're based on characteristics that we possess or things that we like or dislike. I knew a man once whose name was Uncle Soup. That was the only name I ever knew him by because of how much he liked to eat soup. Sometimes they are given based on names that we already have, shortenings of the names that we possess or maybe lengthening of them, like calling someone Mick when their name is Michelle or Jamie if their name is James. They can also be given to us by strangers or family members, friends or close friends, co-workers, or sometimes even by those who bully us. Some nicknames are positive, conveying love and closeness, and some of them are negative, nicknames that you don't want, ones that you'd really rather get rid of. Our text today speaks of the tension between the voice in the desert, John the Baptist, and those crowds of people who came to hear him speaking. John gives them a name, a moniker, but it is one they do not want. It is one that is unfavorable, and they desire to be rid of it. We'll see how they do so in our passage. We're going to read today from Luke chapter 3 through 14, starting in verse 7. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now, the axe is lying at the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then should we do? In reply, he said to them, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none. And whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? He said to them, Collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what should we do? He said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be satisfied with your wages. As we come to the text, the trouble is almost immediately obvious to us. We discussed last week the elements of outward action that come from our conviction in order to prepare the way of the Lord. And this week, we're going to reflect on the inward necessity of our repentance. John starts his comments here with this nickname, a title that no one would want. He calls them brood of vipers, you pit of snakes, you crowd of hypocrites. This John is one we can fully imagine as a fiery prophet, one in the tradition of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos, calling people out for their actions. 
he says to them, who was it that told you that the wrath of God was coming and who told you that you should be afraid of it? He asked them, why have you come to me in the desert seeking repentance? After all, these people are the people of God. They have the law. They have the rules from God. We have the temple. It seems that there is no reason for them to need God's repentance, and yet they have come to him in the desert. So John makes his comment to the people. He asks them, why have you come to me? Why do you come in the desert when you have what you need on paper? You have the text of the scriptures. You have people to teach it to you. You have all of these elements, uh, but they know that they still need their own repentance. There is something yet that they are lacking in their life. And John begins speaking here about that decision, and he challenges two underlying elements of their own faith belief. First, he says, you think that you are righteous just because you want to be forgiven. Seeking forgiveness, he says, is a part of your righteousness, but it is not the whole of it. John is not saying that their hearts are wrong or that their motivations are off base, but only that desiring forgiveness and seeking to be cleansed are two parts of a three-part system. Without truly doing differently, their attempts to be forgiven are incomplete, unfruitful. Secondly, the people think that their status as children of God is distinguishing them before God. And John says, that should not be your defining characteristic. It is not enough to save you. No name or identity, even one as crucial as God's chosen people, children of Abraham, people of the covenant, is salvific in itself. God identifies them as chosen, unquestionably, but it does not protect them from a life of hypocrisy. Their identity is not defining for them in the same way. Rather, it is their connection to God and their reflection of God's will that defines them. God could make children, John says, out of the very stones of the river we stand near. Therefore, the people ought to be mindful that their status as children of Abraham does not make them special, but instead gives them a job to do. The section is a follow-up from our readings last week from Luke 3, where John insists that the forgiveness they seek cannot be separated from the actions of their life. He says, do you want to be safe from what is coming? Bear fruit worthy of your repentance. He means that in order to demonstrate that you desire righteousness, you must also act good and righteously. Why are they known as vipers and snakes and serpents? Because what they say they want to do, who they say they want to be, does not match the life they are living. This name is an insult, a shame to them, but it is not one that they have to live with. John does not leave them there and sees their willingness and desire to come to him and seek forgiveness as an indicator of their openness to God's message. 
After all, John is not found in the center of town, not at the synagogue, not by a major highway, but in the wilderness, in the desert. In order to see John and hear his message, you have to seek him out intentionally. And therefore, the presence of the people indicates at least a curiosity and openness to God's message. So to the crowds, he offers principles for demonstrating inner forgiveness. He says, when you have more than you need, then you must share with anyone who does not have enough. Not just those that you have decided are worthy. Not just those who share your faith or your ethnic community. Not just those you have determined are good people just hit on bad times. Not just those who in your eyes have not taken advantage of the system or who have gone through the appropriate channels. Those who do not have enough to clothe themselves. Those who go hungry more nights than they go fed. You must give out of what you have, not just your excess, what you have to those in need. Then he speaks to the tax collectors, who are themselves so far on the outside of the social circle that the writer acknowledges the surprise of their presence, who knew that tax collectors could want repentance. And when they ask about how to live, John says, do not take advantage of your status and role. Just because there is no one to tell you that your actions are unethical does not mean you get to act as you wish. Instead, ensure fairness when you collect your taxes. Do not allow greed or petty grudges to overtake you. Then he speaks to the soldiers who were most likely Roman soldiers from every ethnic group in the Roman Empire. Their status as employees of Rome meant that they could easily take advantage of whatever community they were stationed in. After all, their overseers had bigger problems than soldiers committing minor crimes like threatening people, extorting money, or lying. <laughs> Therefore, John says, act differently. Distinguish yourself. Do not abuse your level of influence to improve your status while putting other people down. None of the teachings John is offering here are new nor are any of them a deviation or a rejection of the teaching of the Jewish law. John knows the teachings of God's law and the weight of them, and clearly expresses an understanding of that by expanding their scope, demonstrating the heart of God that is present in the law, just as God has been doing from the get-go. It is his true prophetic action, demonstrating to the people that they cannot do one thing and say, Another, God is not changing God's mind by sending John as a prophet, but continuing to reveal what has already been there, a deep compassion for the vulnerable, for justice, for a world of holy people. For us, the trouble is clear as well. In our conversation about inward repentance, we see that sometimes we block our own way to clearing the path of God. John says to us the same, you brood of vipers, you pit of snakes, you crowd of hypocrites. Who is it that told you God's wrath was coming and that you had reason to be afraid? God asks, why did you come to service this week seeking repentance and cleansing? After all, you have the text of the scripture, people to teach you how to live, services and studies and the like. 
so also the challenge offered to the people is to us. First, we should not think that we are righteous simply because we desire to be forgiven. Seeking forgiveness is a part of our whole righteousness. Without truly doing differently, our attempts to be forgiveness, forgiven are unproductive. They produce no good fruit. Our hearts are not wrong. Our motivations are not off base. But desiring forgiveness and seeking cleansing are two parts of a three-part action. The final step is necessary to demonstrate our full change because of the mercy of God. Second, we should be mindful that our status as believers is not what should distinguish us from others. No name or identity, be it Christian, child of God, people of the way, could preserve us from a life of hypocrisy and its consequences. Our identity as believers should reflect our connection to God and our desire to do God's will. After all, God could make children out of these chairs and the poinsettia plants. Therefore, we ought not be so mindful of our status in God's kingdom as something that makes us special, but as something that offers us responsibility. To us, John says, do you want to be safe from what is coming? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. In order for us to demonstrate that we desire righteousness with our whole hearts, good and righteous actions must be taken in our life. Otherwise, we bear fruit not worthy of our choice, unripened or rotted on the vine. We also, at times, bear the name of snake and viper and serpent because what we say we want to do and who we want to be does not always match with our actions. This name is for us an insult and a shame, but it is not one we have to live with. In keeping with the answers that John gives to the crowds, I want us to consider three directions of repentance this morning. These are not necessity elements, but rather demonstrations that we are changed people start to finish, top to bottom, that in God's mercy and forgiveness, we act out of that love. First, repentance from greed to offer support to others. Often our own greed is out of distrust for other people, a distrust that someone else will care for you if you find yourself in a similar situation, a distrust that they have earned your generosity as if you earned it in the first place, or a distrust that you will have what you need. God reminds us through John that everything we have is from God and that mercy and generosity are not ours to dole out, but rather the Lord's. We have received forgiveness and mercy, buckets on buckets on buckets of it. And we are to turn around and offer it to others with that same spirit. Secondly, repentance from unrighteousness done when no one is watching. In two of the responses that John gives to the people, we see the sentiment of things done past the eyes and knowledge of others. Even when there are no consequences for what you do, even when we may even gain something from our unethical behavior, God desires righteousness at all times. 
in every place. Thirdly, repentance from using our own status to take advantage of other people. When power is held, there are those who think that being able to take advantage of their status is an included perk to any new level of influence. But God rejects this idea, this divine right of kings sort of situation, and says, no matter our context, our power, our influence, our status, we must seek to care and provide for those who are vulnerable. Our role should increase our efforts for those in need, not weaken them. Each of these ways that we demonstrate our repentance reflects God's care for those who are in need. God desires that all people should be offered support, that no one should express greed, and that oppression in every form should cease. And out of these truths of God, John teaches that repentance is about living a life of consistency from our words to our choices, from our actions to our thoughts. God does the work of saving and cleansing us. And out of that forgiveness, we desire and act accordingly. This text in our book is found before Jesus has entered the scene in Israel. He has been born and he is no longer a toddling child, but he has not yet begun his public ministry and teaching. Because of this, we find ourselves waiting with the people in the text. We, like they, wait for a savior, one who has been signaled, one whose signs they are seeing, one whose way they are clearing, one who they know is near. Our preparedness for God's coming, according to John in this text, must include true repentance. Waiting includes readiness, and readiness means repentance. This is in order that we can demonstrate to the world and to our God that we desire the presence of God among us. We desire not to be simply those who watch, but those who act in faith that God will come and begin to right all things. By our repentance, demonstrating our forgiveness, we continue to prepare and wait for that true God who comes into the world. You've been listening to me, Pastor Kana Moore, at Hayes Christian Church. Hayes Christian Church is a non-denominational fellowship in Hayes, Kansas. We are supported by the generosity of our members, attenders, and friends. The financial support we raise goes to projects which further spread the gospel to those who do not yet know Jesus, to those local, national, and international missions, and they help keep these podcasts free. If you would like to share a monetary gift with us, please visit our website at hayeschristianchurch.org and click on the donate button, or you may mail your gift to P.O. Box 1111, Hayes, Kansas, 67601. If you have any questions, comments, or would like more information, we would love to hear from you. Simply go to our website and click on the Contact Us form. Thank you for your generosity, and may God bless you as you seek to follow him.